0: what's up guys welcome back to another episode of behind the facade you are listening to the podcast on week two of my honeymoon now this is going to be a quick one i really what i've done here is you might have heard me mention in the past that uh, i do a thing every week called the uh, property investor roundtable now this is a live zoom call that i do and during this live live zoom call i cover lots of different topics related to property and things like that. And the most recent one that I did, uh, like a week ago or thereabouts, was on um, the market outlook. And so what I pr- propose to do is actually take the recording from that and play it back to you. So those of you who have not actually sat in on one of these can have a, an impression of what they're like. And second of all, those of you who uh, have occurred, you know, have attended them in the past, will you know, we'll be able to see what, what it looks like on a playback for a format. So I'm hoping that this will be a useful episode. Um, with me being away, I'm relying on this as a, a, a kind of a gap filler. I'm gonna be back next week, so you'll have me back for a proper episode next week. And so I hope you'll forgive this shortcut that I'm taking this week, but um, please enjoy my property investor roundtable discussion that was held about a week ago live on Zoom. Enjoy. You are listening to Behind the Facade and I'm your host Gavin J. Gallagher. On this podcast I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. I usually do this every week, but this is actually the last week. I'm going to do it for about the next month. I'm actually getting married next Wednesday and after I get married and going on a honeymoon and all that. So I'm not going to be around for about the next three weeks. So I will, if anyone's interested in this, I I put the videos up in the Facebook group. Many of you are members of the Facebook group, and so they're there in the guide section, and you can look back at any old videos. But this today will also be going in there, and um, I'll get into it now. So sharing my screen. Um, So I call this the Property Investor Roundtable. Most of you know who I am. You're from the podcast. Um, Today's talk, we've done the welcome Um, A little intro to myself, last week I'll talk about just very briefly what I mentioned last week and then today it's all about the economic outlook, uh, the property market outlook um, and some of my own predictions and then I'll just mention briefly my mastermind and any questions anybody has. Um, The intro to myself, most of you know probably if you're listening to the podcast, 25 years in the real estate business, uh, four different continents from Dubai here in these photographs to Spain uh, and Europe. Um, I, I spent time in the US, I bought, uh, it's not in this photo here, but I, have, I bought stuff in the US. I developed these buildings here, which were retail buildings. And I, bu- I developed this housing estate here, which included a house for myself. And um, that there is the building that I built in Dubai with a partner. And fast forward that there today, my partner went on and built the adjoining building as well. But I was back in Dublin at that stage, looking after this place, which is part of um, a family business. I've been involved in this for many, many years, but um, I spent eight or nine years abroad. I'm currently sitting in this building here, and this is East Point. So we developed East Point and we own many of these buildings and they're rented out to the likes of Google and Oracle and and lots of different people. So that's just a little intro to me. Um, Last week, what we were talking about on this, I went into cognitive bias. Now, cognitive bias is something that I covered on the podcast. I went into a couple of examples, and particularly the impact that cognitive bias can have on investments. If you're not conscious of it, you can actually, what it is, it's kind of like an automatic go-to decision. Uh, that your brain thinks is the right decision, but it's not always the right decision. And so you can actually make some bad mistakes by not being conscious of the fact that these biases are in the back of your head, programmed to tell you to go a certain direction. That seems like the right direction, but often it's actually the wrong direction. So you can watch that back in the Facebook group if you're interested. So what is the economic outlook for the market? Well. Um, <laughs> Angelo, you mentioned uh, you know, what you, the markets and stuff. This here is uh, from, I just took this from today, right? This is Bitcoin. And uh, you can see over here, uh, that is the current performance, 12 month you, you know, performance of Bitcoin. If You put your money into Bitcoin 12 months ago, you would be now down 44% of your money. So a lot of people, and I've actually talked about this myself, But a lot of people talk about Bitcoin and how great it is and stuff like that. But if you put your money in 12 months ago, you're already 50% almost down on your money in 12 months. So not a great performance. Um, Ethereum, very similar, 40% down on the year. So um, it's all about the timing. These, These cryptocurrencies, like they can do extraordinary things they can you know, they can grow to an extraordinary degree but they're so volatile you really do have to be careful about the quantum of capital that you put into it i mean you go and put 100,000 into it you're now looking at 60,000 in your bank account uh, at the moment 12 months on now if you put it in gold you'd be sitting on uh, about the same amount as you put in 12 months later And uh, you can see it's it's risen by 0.1%. So that's not a great performance. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, which most people who invest would be familiar with, um, down 7% in the last 12 months. So not great. Uh, The NASDAQ, which is obviously uh, more heavily invested in tech stocks and had been doing really, really well. It's down 13% in the last 12 months. the FTSE 100, which is the UK-focused uh, stock market's indices, and that is actually up 1.7%. So that is actually doing relatively well compared to the rest of its peers in terms of indexes and things like that. And then the Isaac All Share Index, this is the Irish market. Irish market is not performing anywhere near as well as the FTSE. You can see we're down 17% on the year. So. And that's on the 12 months as opposed to since January. So anyway, that just gives you a little indication of the way the markets are fluctuating. So there's been a pretty poor showing, generally speaking, for anyone else, you know, with their money in those markets. And you got to ask yourself why. And it kind of boils down to inflation. And inflation has been created by, um, if you think about, COVID came along, everyone panicked, everyone assumed that we're in a massive, massive problem. Uh, There's going to be mass unemployment, there's going to be business closures, there's going to be all of this stuff. And so what did the governments do? In facing such an extraordinary thing, the governments just opened up the coffers and poured as much money into the economy as was possible. So nobody got fired, they went instead and they got uh, they, you know, all these kind of schemes that allowed you to keep your job and get paid. The government would pay the company to pay you. And so, um, you know, all of this stuff was there. It meant that people were sitting at home and continuing to get a paycheck. And so it has completely corrupted the market insofar as that much money should not be in circulation in the economy. And so what it's done is driven up prices and prices of all sorts of stuff, commodities, and all that. One of the benefits, obviously, of um, inflation is that property is a good hedge against it. So whenever you have periods of high inflation, one of the good things about it is that rents tend to rise with inflation. And therefore, if you own a property, you're able to increase your rent uh, that your tenant pays you, and you continue to rise up the market. So unlike You know, we're all seeing it in the petrol pump. We're all seeing it in our, you know, cost of living at home, fueling your house, um, heating your house, all that stuff. It's just gone crazy in the last while. And but you can like tweak your rent and you can increase it and it's increasing annually. Now the only problem is certain parts of this country, certainly um, I'm not sure what what it's like in the UK. Uh, Jerry can tell us in a little bit, but you have got rent pressure zones in Ireland now. And rent pressure zones, there's a government restriction on the increases that you can have. Um, And so in the past, if inflation was running at 10 percent a year, then what a landlord might do is increase their rent by 10 percent just to compensate for that so that they're not at a loss. At the moment, there's these rent pressure zones. The maximum increase, I think, is now around two and a half to four percent. And so there is a kind of an artificial cap there, and that's obviously going to mean that the market, um, somebody who puts their house on the market today versus somebody who put their house on the market two years ago, on the same road, there could be actually quite a discrepancy between what the rent one person's paying versus another, because the other person, the, the landlord who started a few years ago will have been restricted in terms of what they can rise to, whereas the person who's starting for the first time can just Throw the market, throw it out at the market rent. Interest rates is the big uh, driver when it comes to putting a control on inflation. When inflation goes out of control, as it is now out of control, the only way to rein it back in is with interest rates. And this just, I took this from the Bank of England or from the BBC from the Bank of England, but you can see what rates have changed in the last like thirty years. In 1992, uh, I bought my first property in 93. 1992, interest rates were 10% or thereabouts in the UK. Today, they have been hovering around zero for the last 10 years, like one below 1%, zero for the last while. And only now they're starting to creep up. So it's not surprising that property and investments in general have done extraordinarily well when you when you're able to borrow money at almost nothing then the asset prices tend to increase because like what's to stop you you can go out there you can borrow the maximum that you can borrow and the worst case scenario you're paying 1 or 2% so that is what's driven up a lot of asset prices and to a, to the to a, an unhealthy level, if you look at some of the stock uh, prices for technology companies in the US, Netflix has fallen by 70% in just the last three months. And so that is because during pan, the pandemic, everyone was at home, everyone started subscribing to Netflix, Netflix saw this massive growth. That it had never seen before. Everyone went wild thinking that this is a new uh, Apple computer company. And when all of this happened, uh, it drove the prices to an astronomical level. And people are starting to finally realize: whoa, inflation is actually causing people to cut back on expenditure. So if you've got, if you've been sitting at home for the last two years and you have been, um, you know, buy, subscribing to all these different streaming services. You've got netflix you've got disney you've got apple tv and there's all sorts of other ones out there and then suddenly the petrol pump prices have gone up the cost of heating your home has gone up i don't know if you guys are noticing in the grocery store like buying tesco now is at least 20 percent higher than i can remember it being when i'm doing the weekly kind of shop or whatever so all of this stuff is pushing up making it more and more difficult for people to fund just day-to-day lifestyle expenses. And so cutbacks have got to be done. And you start looking at your bank statement and you saying, what can I live without? Um, I think maybe I can live without that streaming service, Amazon Prime, whatever it is. And that is one of the reasons why we've seen this massive fall in prices like that. If I go into the next slide, what we actually see is, uh, this is predictions. This is the, for the Bank of England, and I've got the Irish market as well covered. But what you can see here is that the predictions for the next couple of years, we are sitting around here at the moment, okay? They're expecting that the, right, the, ra- the rates will continue to increase. Some people are a little bit less uh, you know, worried about it, and they think that this will be the level. Other people are saying that, no, no, it's going to be at this level. But this is actually the level of inflation that is predicted by the market, which is pretty extraordinary, as you can see. Now, they do think it will fall back, but that remains to be seen. These are the levels. So you're talking about two and a half percent rates. It has been, as you can see down here, virtually zero for the last year and a half. And now it's about to go to two and a half percent if you look at this figure. Um, In the ECB, obviously, Irish rates are dictated by the European Central Bank. So the ECB are the ones that we base our rates on. And you can actually see that we have been minus half a percent. So that is the reason why anyone who's got any savings in the bank at the moment is actually paying negative interest rates on those savings. And, And I know somebody at the moment who's paying about 700 a month in uh, costs because they've got some a, a decent chunk of change sitting in the bank there and they're going mad like they're saying to me like this is crazy how am I paying 700 a month to the bank to keep my money in there like what can I invest in that's safe I don't want the money to reduce in value but I just don't want to be paying for the privilege of saving my money in the bank so what are the market drivers? If you look at the Irish market, the Irish market and the UK market, they're very much correlated in terms of the, the same driving forces, okay? You've got supply, you've got demand. There's massive imbalances there. And then they're both gonna be impacted by affordability. All right? Um, if I take you into, here's two different reports, both came out around about, the, well, in 2021, and this is the, the Irish report says that 50,000 new homes needed every year to solve the housing crisis, okay? And that is last, uh, last August, all right? Now, at the same time, you've got the House of Commons in the UK talking about the, tackling the undersupply of housing in England, okay? Both markets suffering from dreadful undersupply. And you gotta wonder what that, why that is. You've got the national requirements, for supply of housing and things like that. And the national requirements are based on Central Statistics Office um, surveys that they do. We've only just recently done our Irish one here last April. And that is, there's a basic amount every year of houses that are needed just to supply inventory levels to keep everything at an equilibrium, right? That is not being, that number is not being met for the last number of years partly because of COVID restrictions in the last two years. But even more than that, if you go back to 2008, the market crash of 2008 totally turned upside down the market in both the UK and Ireland, more so in Ireland. We had, got, we had a huge construction boom going on and the market completely collapsed in 2008. And after that, we reduced the amount of uh, output Um, by a massive amount. I've actually got some figures to show you now, but that has dramatically impacted inventory levels. We do not have the amount of of housing out there um, to actually keep the market kind of at any kind of an equilibrium. Here is the figures of housing completions in the Irish market going back to 1960. You can see back in the 60s, you had around just under 10,000 units a year. And then that gradually grew Then there was a bit of a crash in 1980, and it fell back, but then we hit the beginning of the Celtic Tiger, as it's called, and that saw this massive, massive growth. Every year, the construction industry grew, and every year, the economy grew, and it just, in this beginning, in 2003, 2004, it really went out of control, and that is really the point that broke the Irish market when the credit bubble started to take over. Everyone was just speculating, buying like crazy, buying off plan, all of that. And you ended up with 90,000 houses completed in the year of 2007. Now, crash happened and then suddenly look at it falling off. It ended up back in the 1960s level of housing output. Okay, And the problem is it didn't It didn't do that for just 12 months. It did that continuously for a number of years. And so what it actually did was instead of having 90,000 houses, we had 10,000 built. And then we had a a year or two later, we had 12,000 built and then 13,000 built. Whereas we need an annual amount of about 30,000 houses just to keep up with the birth rate in the country. And so you've got this massive undersupply. And it really affected the ability of the market to actually work um, efficiently. So you've got then, if we look at the demand levels, okay? The demand is driven by the population age profile. It's also driven by migration. And you, ha- you have outward emigration and you have immer- Im- in a- a- immigration, and there's a net position between one and the other. And I'll have a look at that now in a moment. And then you've also got to analyze who's buying the properties today versus who was buying them back in the the boom time in 2006 and 2007. And then we've got to throw in this new uncertain sort of issue, and that is the war in Ukraine and the refugee crisis that it has created. So this here is a population pyramid, right? What this is, this just shows you the blue is the number of males in the Irish uh, market and the pink is the number of females in the market. And this just gives you an idea of the size of each cohort. So the largest cohort in the market is age 40 to 44. There's 3.9% of men and there's 4.1% of women, right? But then you've got this growing thing here. You see the five to nine and the 10 to 14. That is actually a bit of a bump there. and That birth rate, that will actually move up every couple of years that will grow uh move forward and those will become people that have to go to college and those will become people that actually come out of college and want to go and buy a home and so you can see that we're actually not going to like these small reductions here will only be a blip and then it'll go on but what you got to think about is the different formation like the people that are in this level here these are people that are looking at their, the, the largest sort of house size. These people here are looking at single apartments and stuff because they're kind of in their 20s and whatever. Now, the net migration figure is really important to kind of look at, because what you've got here is the number of people that emigrated out of the country in dark and then the number of people that immigrated into the country in uh, bright blue. Right. And what you can see is if you go to 2009, what we had, 2011, this is when the economy was really at its worst, okay, Um, after the crash. Sorry, let me just go back. You can see there that there was more people leaving the country than there was coming back into the country. So it was quite, and what you've got there is this yellow line represents the actual net figure, okay? So the net figure was about a little under 30,000 people left more so than came into the country all right same in 2011 and 2012. then it started to kind of reach equilibrium and in 2014 we reached equilibrium where the same number of people left as came into the country and since then it has been growing and of course this is natural because the economy is doing much much better and so people are coming back to the country if they moved abroad years ago they're starting to come back And um, also what you've got to think about is the different age cohorts, okay? If you consider the people that are emigrating in 2019, you can see you have got about 30,000 net migration into the country, all right? But what's important is the actual distribution there. You've got this dark line here is a little over 50,000 people left the country, okay? And then about 90,000 entered the country. And that gives you the net figure. But actually, if you think about the people that are leaving the country, they tend to be young people and students and people that are going off to travel for a year or to do something or whatever it might be. Whereas the people coming into the country tend to be people who are coming in for jobs and might be bringing family with them and things like that. And so the people that are leaving might have already just been living at home with their parents, whereas the people coming in tend to be older and actually need a home. And therefore, that is going to mean that there is a greater push and demand on prices. Next thing is, who is buying, right? Now, back in 2006 and six and seven and stuff, you had just huge speculation. And it was speculation on the market is growing, I'll buy a property, keep it for a year or two sell it and I'll you know I'll pocket 50 grand or whatever it was back then and it was very very easy to get money you just put your hand up and the bank would throw money at you okay and that was the way it was and I can speak from experience like I borrowed 110% on most of the deals that I was doing in 2006 and 2007 today we're not looking at speculation. We've just gone through the demand and the supply imbalances, okay? You've got huge numbers of people that need homes and that need to buy homes, okay? This is not people that are looking to flip a house. These are people that want to buy. And you can tell because the rental market is absolutely out of control. And there's queues of people standing outside a house when it comes up for rent. So it's really gone quite crazy, right? Now, what is stopping all of this is that the lending rules, and I've just got this post, this this here tells you what the Irish lending rules are, okay? First time buyers, it is now capped for most people at three and a half times your income. And only 20% of mortgages can be above that cap, okay? For most people, you need a 10% mortgage. And only 5% of mortgages can have a lower deposit than that amount. Now that's for first time buyers. For second and subsequent buyers, it actually becomes even more so, um, more controlled. Three and a half times income, and only 10% of mortgages can be above that cap. And then you can see down here, most people for their second subsequent purchase, they need to put down 20%. And only 20% of mortgages can have a lower figure than that. Now that is trans- completely transformed the way the market is. Back in 2008, people were borrowing five and six times their income in order to kind of get on the property ladder. Now you can't do that, it is based on your income. So that's locked a lot of people out of the market. So the demand that you see at the moment for housing purchases is actually from this lower level that's possible. If the banks were to increase those those caps, there'd be a much, much bigger increase in the number of people buying. And that is why so many people are forced to rent at the moment, because you can't borrow money from the banks, unless you have this, uh, unless you have a decent enough income to actually allow you to do it. Now, the big sort of unknown at the moment is currently, as of today, there is an estimated 5.7 million refugees have actually left Ukraine and you know, I don't know how many the UK are taking, but I do know that the Irish have said that they will put their hand up and take 200,000 at the moment. Okay, now I think morally speaking, of course, that is the right thing to do, but we are in a, an acute housing crisis. Where are you going to put 200,000 people? That is a really big question, and I know that I've been contacted by some, um, like being uh, running this business park. We've got a lot of uh, contacts into the government, stuff like that. And I've been contacted by people asking, do we have any office buildings that we could actually turn into refugee centers and actually let people sleep on camp beds in the actual office building? Now, we just we said like no chance, A, because of fire certificate uh, issues, B, because of insurance issues, C, because of bank covenants. And, and, and then we just don't have uh, you know, that much space sitting empty to do that anyway. But I mean, this is just crazy that government departments are actually looking for office buildings to convert into refugee centres. I know I have a friend in Carlo at the moment and he has got uh, a pub business and he'd been doing quite well with stag parties and hen do's and all of this kind of stuff coming to his pub. What's actually happened recently Is nobody is coming. Why is that? Because every single bed and breakfast and every single hotel room is booked up. And it's booked up by the local authority putting refugees into these places. And so you can't like it's going to have an impact on the housing market. And it's just going to continue to push up demand, in my opinion. Now, the biggest issue that I see, those two, if it was just supply and demand, then that would be it. There would be absolutely nothing else. The market is just going to rip and continue to go forever, OK? But the one thing that we have to, we cannot discount is affordability, right? And affordability, I already mentioned the petrol pump, OK? How many people are filling up their car and, and saying, ouch, because it has gone up like I can remember. I used to fill my car for like €67. Euro. Now it's €120 Euro to fill my car. And so like it has just gone crazy in the last couple of years. Um, this here is an, an indication from the Bank of England of what the actual, uh, the target rate that they were looking for. And you can see over the years, it's kind of gone a bit wild. But this is this is the amount, the blue the black line is the level that they would like it to be at all of the, the time. And then this is just the amount that it's gone up recently. And it's just, it's, it's out of control. And I saw there that they're predicting that the cost of energy to heat homes in the UK is about to go up by another 400%. So this is insane. I mean, I just don't know. You can see why uh, Boris did so badly in the last election, because I think a lot of people are thinking that this is a major problem now. So your affordability, your ability to afford the stuff that you're paying for, like you can't not fill your car. You can't not heat your home. All of these things have to be done. And so it's going to impact what you can do. And so your ability to buy is tied, completely tied to affordability, right? How much rent can you pay? Or how much can you pay on your mortgage, right? If you are paying a fixed mortgage of a thousand a month or whatever it is, okay, that fixed mortgage that you're paying, you used to be getting so much of a paycheck in and you're paying out so much on your mortgage. Now, all of a sudden, you've got your petrol, you've got your heating of your house, you've got your groceries, all of them have gone up by so much that there's no spare capacity. And this is now impacting the amount that you can uh, you can maybe borrow or you can pay on rent. So that could impact the affordability of homes. Now, in addition to that, I mentioned that the central banks around Europe and the UK, they are looking at trying to bring down inflation, the only way they're going to do that is by increasing interest rates. So the interest rate on your mortgage is about to go up and it has already started to go up. And uh, there's a lot of predictions that the U.S. is about to see uh, its first housing crisis in the last 10 or 11 years. And um, construction capacity, though, is another thing you can see that the cost, I'm building houses in Shank Hill at the moment and uh, here in Dublin, and it has gone crazy the cost. Like when we started our predicting or doing our forecasts for the cost of construction, we estimated that block layers were going to be 110 euro per block. They're currently, we're currently paying 270 per block. So it it has gone more than double the cost of what we had predicted. And so that's also gonna push up the cost uh, or impact the profitability of uh, the builders. And uh, all the builders are going to be trying to push up prices because of this. They have to pass on these extra costs somehow or other. So getting into like my predictions, I predict that inflation is definitely going to impact affordability. All right? You're going to see uh, the affordability of homes and stuff like that will come under some pressure. And so values may fall, uh, but your debt costs are definitely going to go up, all right? So there's definitely a bit of a concern there. And if if I were in your shoes, I'd be looking at fixing, potentially fixing your interest rates just to take that uncertainty out of it. And over the years, I've gone with floating and I've gone with fixed interest rates. And it's often a difficult decision to make because floating rates are always lower than fixed rates. At the time that you look at them, so if you look today, it might be you know one percent floating rate, fixed rate might be three percent. So you'd be saying, well, why would I go and you know voluntarily choose the more expensive one? Well, you choose it because in twelve months' time, the floating rate might be four percent, and you'll be you'll be locked in at your three percent still. So there is pros and cons to it. Uh, is there going to be a crash? Personally, I don't think so, and I don't think so because. I mentioned already, supply-demand imbalances. It is so acute. The the supply issues and the demand issues are so massive that I think there's always going to be demand for property. The question is going to be around the affordability. And I think one of the things that I think could be um, very, very valuable, certainly in the Irish market, um, is creation of HMOs. Because as affordability becomes an issue, people may stop renting houses and apartments and may start looking to rent just a room on a per room basis. And so uh, certainly some of my clients in my mastermind, they are going out, they're buying old, you know, manor houses and they're breaking them up into nine bedroom HMOs. And uh, this kind of thing, they're getting 850 a month from people that are renting them and this some of them are actually getting between 15 and 19% a year annual return on their investment. So it is a really really strong way to make a return. And compare that with doing your traditional buy to let in, you know, Dublin or, you know, any market in, in the UK. I don't know what the market rates are in the UK, but I do know that here in Dublin you're probably looking at 3 or 4% annual return. On your money if you buy a, a traditional apartment or something, whereas you could buy an old house and get 15% renting on a bed-by-bed basis. Now, there is more management in that. Um, just briefly mention my mastermind. If anyone is interested in learning more about property investment and all that, I have a program. Um, it's called the Elite Property Accelerator. It's a six-month program, um, and it's highly focused on Uh, I'll I'll actually show you the curriculum. The curriculum is um, you go through a, a road, each of these is six weeks long. Okay, module one is a roadmap where you establish your strategy. Then you go into a financial analysis. This is learning how to analyze deals and how to get into all of the financial stuff. And we have a portfolio build, which is learn, it's a six week module on how to build a portfolio. Um, All of the tips and tricks that I've picked up over the years to grow a portfolio. And then finally, and this is an important one that most people, I leave it to the end because you need to have the other stuff beforehand, but it's the investor pitch. And most people are not just buying with their own money. They like, you've only got a finite amount of capital. As soon as that is spent, that's it, you're out of the market, but you might have skills that you can actually continue to do this. And so what you want to do is go out to all of those people who are sitting on money in the bank, that's getting a negative interest rate and actually convince them to back you. And then you end up making your small amount of capital go an awful lot further by having investors jump on board with you. So if anyone is interested in learning more, you know, just let me know. The next intake is in four weeks when I'm back from my honeymoon, we're into a uh, the next program intake. And so I'll be back on the 8th of June doing these things and over to you guys. Look, that's about 45 minutes. If you guys have any questions. Hey guys, it's me again, quick favor before you go. If you could take a moment to just leave a quick review over on iTunes, or indeed, if you are watching this on YouTube, please just like it and leave a comment below. If you do have any questions or topics that you'd like me to cover in future episodes, leave a comment, join the Facebook group. Alternatively, send me a DM uh, via social media. And as you guys know, my handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. And don't forget to check out that link to the Property Investor Readiness Test down in the show notes. Right, so guys, that's it. I hope you are gonna have an awesome week and we shall catch you all next week.